0: Welcome to another special tea episode of Reproducibility. Today we're talking to Peter Isager from the uh, Technische Universität Eindhoven. Is that how you pronounce it? I don't know.
1: Um, uh, he's a PhD not. student there. Ooh. You probably know better than me, actually.
0: I feel like I should have inserted a couple of chs in there.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I did it yes. like a German Ach,
3: person. Yeah.
2: I'm not allowed to make jokes. It's Einhoven, <laughs> you guys. <laughs> oh,
1: Daniel will kill He's Actually, me now. also Isach. <laughs> well, to the Dutch people, it is. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. Well, anyway, so you're a, you're a PhD
0: student um, with Daniel Lackens. Um, yes. And you're originally from Oslo, and you're no, originally from Norway. Yeah. But you're currently in Oslo, but
1: bo- both are correct. You're right. Both are correct. Almost. Yes.
3: But Oslo is, is in, Oslo. in Norway.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm yes. from 40 minutes <laughs> out. But, uh, I mean, yeah, it's splitting hairs, guys. It's basically Oslo. I'm basically from Oslo. I'm not
3: saying that, like, Norway is literally just Oslo. (laughs) I just wanted to
1: tell Sophia that Oslo is also Norway. It's Oslo (laughs) in (laughs) the wilds. Oslo in the north, uh, you can call it. We've
0: already included so much... uh, sort of subtle country bashing in here. (laughs) This will be interesting for the comments.
1: But yes, what are you doing in Norway at the moment? Yeah, so I'm uh, home at the moment, and I'm working with my old lab, um, with whom I did my master's thesis. And um, I'm back home to write up, uh, or to work on a paper with them, uh, writing up some old data that I helped collect. Uh, but coincidentally, uh, they want to use an approach to analyze these data called equivalence testing um, that I have been working on a lot lately uh, for my PhD or as a side quest to my PhD. Um, so it was it sort of made sense for me to take the trip back and take a little week uh, working with them. It's a nice practical experience. Um, so I've been working on this thing called equivalence testing, which is basically an approach or a method for assessing um, null effects. Uh, so I think yeah, this is one of the reasons why everyone started liking Bayesian uh, analysis so much and base factors is that it allows you to assess evidence for both your hypothesis and the null hypothesis and equivalence testing tries um, To bring uh, this into the frequentist framework as well, and it's been around for a while. Uh, Daniel, my supervisor, he tried to um, sort of, uh, as he he, is want to do, he tried to uh, get people in psychology to understand this method and get them on board. And we helped him write one paper, uh, sort of exemplifying the approach. But, of course, it is a lot easier to write about how you could do something or how you should do something than to actually do it. So now I am back in Oslo trying to actually do it. Um, and we'll see how that goes.
0: So have you, just, have you only just arrived? Or can you already tell us something about um, the difficulties of yeah. actually implementing these things?
1: I only just arrived uh, today. Or I arrived um, on Saturday, but this is my first day at work. Um, the tricky thing with the project that I'm working on is that it is about fMRI data. Um, so normally these approaches in the frequencies framework, uh, they rely on multiple comparison correction, um, which means like, uh, yeah, I do one test, uh, I have a certain alpha level that I can control. If, hopefully, if I don't p-hack, um, but if I add another test, uh, then I inflate my alpha level unless I correct for the number of tests that I'm doing. And with psychological data, this is uh, often manageable. You have a manageable amount of tests that you're going to do in an experiment. Um, but for the the data that we're working on now is this fMRI whole brain data set, which means you have you basically have a big box, which is the which is the brain it's a big image and it's three-dimensional and the brain is represented through all these little boxes inside the big box and every little box gets a t-test which means (laughs) in the end you do something like a hundred and eighty times sixty times sixty yeah a few thousand t-tests basically and um, for normal null hypothesis testing uh, people have sort of figured out clever ways that you can correct for multiple comparisons because you know that the normal ways of doing it are a bit too strict um, and you have certain expectations about the data which means you can be clever about how you do the correction uh, but <laughs> equivalence testing needs some more thinking uh, about it before like we reach that point and I think that part of this project is thinking about stuff like that, um, thinking about how you take uh, an approach that's been described for basic tests and actually applying it to more complex data. But, but I ha- had, but similar... it's my first day, I haven't done it yet.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've, I've had similar um, experiences in the last months where you take something that somebody initially developed and you're like, oh, I'm gonna use this and Anything either than the very simple tests, you run into all these issues. And I think what's interesting for me is that they it really oops sorry I just lost my earbud. Um, I'm back now. Um, That the really interesting for me is that it really shows you when you don't understand something fully. Like I wanted to apply something with structural equation modeling, and I've used structural equation modeling, and everybody around me is a structural equation modeling. I'm in a social lab. Um, but all of a sudden you're like, oh, I need to do something slightly different from the ordinary and all of a sudden you're like at ground zero and you don't know. <laughs> you 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 realize that you don't know the technique as well as you thought. Um so yeah, I think this developing methods often shows you that we only really understand the absolute basics, or so for me, I went back to correlations, because I was like, I know, I understand my correlations, um, and I'll work from there, and then, you know, people around me are building these really complicated models, and a lot of them are very good models, I just feel like, um, oftentimes, we we over-inflate the, how good we think we know the method, I don't
1: yeah, know. Yeah, I think that's true. Um... Well, I mean, I real think... pep talk for him there. <laughs> 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 in like, other words, this week. Yeah. I? <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. So I think you can understand the basics of a method and how it applies to um, a simple case. And I think this is how many methods get developed. Right? You take you start out by assuming simplicity because it's just easier to think about how the method would work out in that case. And I think a lot of like people in other sciences, like physicists and chemists and mathematicians, they just, yeah, they start off with simple assumptions because it's easier to think about the one thing that they want to think about then. Um, but of course, in scientific practice, you often need the complicated approach. So, um, yeah, one thing that, uh, has sort of become a phenomenon in our lab is that, uh, people, around the department have sort of caught on that we know about power analysis and how you could do them. And uh, <laughs> uh, so people come around. And the reason people come around is because Daniel, I think yeah, I think he's the instigator. He managed to sneak in a power criterion in the ethics requirements uh, for the department. So people are actually required... To have 90% power uh, for uh, the test that they're going to do in their, um, in the study they propose, uh, uh-huh. which means everyone is sort of freaking out, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and some of them are coming to us. Uh, the problem is, uh, we ask them like, okay, so what is the um, what is the approach that you're going to use? And they'll say something like, oh, I have this mixed model design, or I have this like, I have this three by three ANOVA. And, yeah, then we're off to the races. Like, then, I'm sorry. And they, they usually have tried G-Power, for example. Uh, so, G-Power is this one software that can do power analysis. It's certainly the one, first one I heard about and the first one I used. Um, but it is slightly limited. So, often slightly. if you want to do... has yeah, slightly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah slightly. <laughs> and it, uh, it, it's not always intuitive what it actually does, I think, especially for complicated designs. And it also doesn't work for all designs. So um, I've developed an approach that I have to say I just stole from Anna Schiel, my co-PhD, whom with I share an office, uh, which is to refer everyone to an app by Jake Westphal called Pangea or Pangea, or however the Americans pronounce it. If Jake is even American, I don't know. I'm sorry, Jake. Uh, And yeah, and we add another country to the.
0: Come on. (laughs) So many apologies to so many (laughs) countries.
3: (laughs) I sincerely apologize to both Norway, the Netherlands, and America. (laughs) (laughs) What's it The United States of America.
0: (laughs)
1: Um, Yeah, but I will say, if anyone is out there and wants to do a complicated power analysis, his app that is, I think it's a Shiny-based, is it can handle a lot more complicated designs. And if you come asking me for how to do a power analysis, this is usually where I will refer you to. So we'll add it to the show notes, then? Do it. Yeah, yeah definitely.
3: Well, I think I think we can all, we've had these discussions in our group about power analyses and complex models, and not even complex models, like a bit more complex models and the failings of G power
2: and the sheer amount of just dog shit advice out there about Mm -hmm. G power, right? So you could take a three way and over and you get people advising that to make G power work, you essentially do a two by four and (laughs) kind of collapse across groups. And then I kind of sit there and go, but, but you're telling it to do a different test. Like, (laughs) I get that that, that that like if you count the number of groups on your finger, it works out, but...
1: Ah, tomato, nope, tomato, Sam. Sam. <laughs> it's probably the same, right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, it, I mean, it looks nicer, right? You don't need as many participants so you can get away with a smaller study.
0: And that yeah. really is the main goal of that entire exercise. Isn't that what power analysis is All right, right? Just to try and
2: like selectively pick the biggest effect size from your literature and mash some buttons until you only need 10 people per cell?
1: Well, I think... That's um... why I've been using it.
0: <laughs> Someone is going okay. to take that out of context at some point. <laughs>
1: I mean not analysis... think that's
3: been a good episode so far. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> so so in, in terms of equivalence testing, what, what are the challenges in uh, like other than, other than the complexity of kind of multiple comparisons with fMRI, what are the challenges that you've found because you're, you're kind of advocating for this approach, right? So yeah. well what's the, what's the usual Let's... comeback that you get for, hey, equivalence testing should be done here?
1: Well, I think the absolute um, the very top of the issues list is, of course, setting your smallest effect size of interest. Um, it's interesting because equivalence testing uh, promotes you to think about this in order to do an... Okay, so maybe I should just do a little bit of explanation. In order to do an equivalence test, you determine what uh, the smallest effect you would care about is for whatever reason. There are several reasons you could choose among. Once you have determined what your smallest effect size of interest is you can set up a hypothesis test in the frequentist sense um, and test against the smallest effect you care about so you're essentially um, you're trying to um, you're trying to falsify effects you care about so it's this sort of reverse logic where if you use a normal null hypothesis test, Um, you're trying to falsify the null in some sense. You're trying to show that the null is unlikely given the data that you have. And But the problem is, once you care about null effects, which I think many people in some instances do, certainly in the project I'm working on now, we do, if you have a non-significant result from a null hypothesis test, um, that could be because there is no effect, or it could be because you had a shitty measurement of that effect. (laughs) And the p-value really doesn't say, really doesn't tell you. Uh, The p-value was not designed to give you this information. Um, So once uh, there is no effect, then Mm p-values will tend to be uniformly distributed, which means any value between 0 and 1 is equally likely. And um, this will be the case whether you have good or bad precision, basically. And uh, equivalent testing Tries to solve this problem by um, by letting you take your precision into account, basically. So the sort of um, intuitive way to think about equivalence testing is uh, it's, it assesses your confidence intervals, uh, basically, and it assesses the the width of your confidence intervals. Um, but And then it tries to um, gauge whether the precision of your estimate falls between the upper and the lower bound of your test, and the upper and the lower bound of your test is the smallest effect you care about, basically. So if you have an um, equivalent result, uh, that is sort of the equivalence testing way of saying you have a significant result, uh, then you conclude that it is unlikely... Uh, that you would have gotten the data you have if the effect was at least as large as the smallest effect you care about. Um, the trick is to set the bounds. The trick is to say, this is the smallest effect I care about. Um, this is, um, like in psychology in general, an issue. This is a nightmare for uh, the stuff that I'm working with. Like uh, trying to determine this stuff for fMRI is... Um not something many people have thought about, and also it's a kind of data where it's really tough to say, like, if the percentage signal change in the brain is smaller than this, then I wouldn't care about it. Um, but I think also in psychology in general, uh, people have intuitions about which direction effects will go in, and people... Uh, might have some uh, might have some hypotheses about causality Um, and people might have some expectations about how big the effect is supposed to be like the stoop effect is supposed to be pretty large I guess Um, and uh, ego depletion is supposed to be pretty small I guess Uh, but ego depletion is a good example of the fact that people disagree about what the smallest effect size is and it's not completely it's not set in stone what it should be so like Roy Baumeister who is the guy behind this right sure let's call him the yeah
0: um he <laughs> we forgot that it's audio not video because we all just went like <laughs> yeah you...
1: so you know, you're, for, for you're, the audience you're, out you're there <laughs> all the play, host
0: just we just
3: signaling hands up like we don't know I don't know like the W shape with your arms when you don't I I, I Uh, whatever, (laughs) whatever. Let's Let's just go back
1: to... Well, there was this uh, big replication of ego depletion, right? And then they had uh, basically came out, there's a really small effect, but it is significant. It's statistically significant. And um, that is essentially, or that essentially turned into a debate about what the smallest effect size of interest is. Uh, So is uh, D of 0.04 really interesting? Like, is that really something in psychology that we would care about looking for? Uh, And it's tough to tell because it's one experimental operationalization of a bigger concept. And it's not completely intuitive to people what a certain D value means in terms of like, what's the actual psychological phenomenon here? And if their D is smaller than 0.1, is there really no psychological effect to be discovered. Um,
3: yeah, I, I think this is something I've been really thinking a lot about as well, because in my recent paper, I, I didn't do equivalence testing, but I set kind of a small effect size of interest um, because I use such large scale data that even tiny effects become significant. And you need to start thinking about, you know, how small is too small. And then I set something at 0.1, so a correlation of 0.1 as being too little. And then I got something, this is changing now, I've been changing my analyses, but I got something like 0.09. <laughs> and then the reviewers came back being like, well, that's, you know, really good for you. Like, well, it's just under, Um, but then like, you know, your your limit at 0.1 is just quite arbitrary cutoff, isn't it? Like, yeah. how can you interpret it as not being an effect because you find 0.09? And I was like, well, but we do the same with p-values. Like, 0.05 isn't a lot better. Like, why are you giving me slack about that if you don't give people slack about 0.049 for a p-value? You know, and I was like, um, but, yeah, it is, it is an issue because... It really depends on. I've been talking to epidemiologists. So it just depends on the study and yeah. what you're looking at, and it's just very hard to give general advice.
1: I mean, the, it's sometimes you are luck, not lucky, maybe, but there are sort of a hierarchy of um, ways that you can determine this, and I think the um, the info, the informativeness of tests like equivalence tests. Uh, increase the higher up in this information hierarchy you are. So, at the very top, you have some theoretical reason for saying that the effect should be at least this, or, um, or I know that it can't matter. So, there's one um, example that Daniel likes, uh, which is, um, there was a study that looked at the redness of females' faces... And, oh shit, I can't remember the actual paradigm in, uh, now, but um, it was supposed to, uh, it was based on this evolutionary theory, and uh, the redness of the face was supposed to predict something about the male behavior, I think. Go read my paper. Um, <laughs> uh, and the, you, you could set a, um, equivalence bound in that case, uh, based on the smallest noticeable difference uh, in visual perception in males Which is kind of elegant So you could say like Well in order for males to have any change In behavior due to the redness Of the face of females Then they would have to be able to see the, A difference in the redness of the face Of females uh, And so the paper could actually Theoretically determine a uh, Value for the Like the hue contrast Or however you would define it And um, and in that case, I think an equivalence test could be informative, even though, even if you get close to the bounds, right? Because um, it is more or less a hard set. Um, it is more it's a, a, a hard set theoretically, smallest effect size difference. If you can't do it that way, there are other ways to set it, um, and you it just is going to give you different kinds of information. So. Um, you could, for example, base your smallest effect size on the result of a previous study. So, if you are um, if you are replicating someone, for example, you could say that you can make some assumptions about their study, and you could say, for example, uh, these guys studied this phenomenon, and we assume that they powered for effects that they cared about. Uh, so, uh, we'll take an effect that they had low power for, and assume that they didn't think this effect was important, so we won't consider it important. And that will be our smallest effect size of interest. Um, that's sort of the the layman's version of explaining um, something called a small telescopes approach, which was uh, described by Uri Simonson, I think. There's a paper on this. Um, and um, that uh, is also informative, I think, if you can find an equivalent result and say uh, we think it is unlikely that the effect is um, larger than what the original authors cared about. The problem is you have to assume stuff like the original author is powered for effects that they care about, um, which certainly does not always happen. And even if it did, um, you are sort of... Um, you're counting on that they have a good reason for why they care about that effect. And anyone else that looks at your equivalent result could, of course, come along and say, well, actually, I care about effects that are much smaller than this. Um, Which is, yeah, a reason why I would consider this to be a sort of lower-in-the-hierarchy way of determining your effect sizes, just because there's more ambiguity in the effect size you actually set. And then... Um, There have been some people uh, that have also set their smallest effect size of interest based on what they themselves have power for. This gets complicated, and we had a lot of discussion about this in our lab. And I have to say, I'm still not completely sure how I feel about this. Um, There is some risk that you're sort of double-dipping, because you set the power of your design and you're also now setting the smallest effects that you care about. Um, but in principle, it should give you the answer to some resource question. So you should, uh, you're basically asking, is the effect smaller than what I have the resources to study? Assuming that like, I can get 80% power for... like I can collect 200 people. That's what I have the money to detect. And what do I have power for? Um, well, it would be. It might be interesting to know whether the effect is likely to be smaller than that, um, because then I can't study it unless I get more resources, or other people should get more resources before they study it.
3: We are reflective. <laughs> that is very
1: interesting. Yeah,
3: there's. you, a get, you get a lot of people asking you questions about equivalence testing, coming from a group of people now asking you questions about it. <laughs>
1: Um, I think more and more. Daniel usually gets the brunt of it, because um, he wrote the first paper, and that's, I think, the paper that most people have read. Is sort of introduction, his tutorial paper on this. And then we wrote one last year, which was published early this year, I think. Yeah, anyway. So I had a few people contact me now. Uh, there was a very interesting case, uh, like, two weeks ago. Where someone uh, sent me their analyses and said, we included an equivalence test and we were going to ask you what you think about our interpretation of it and whether you have any examples of um, use cases that you think are uh, informative or exemplary. And I read their excerpt that they sent me and I replied to them, I think this is one of the best use cases that I've seen of equivalence testing in the wild. Mm-hmm. Um so there, there isn't a lot of it being used in psychology at the moment, um, but yeah, from the little I've seen, it, uh, there is about to be some good examples out there of how to use it. Um, I think it's, the method is also new enough that, like, I hope within the next few years, um, it has caught on. Enough that people are gen- like people in general might have heard about it at least, even though they haven't implemented. That this, it, it the sort of it achieves the same status as the base factor maybe.
2: Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's going to be shots fired. We're going to get hammered. <laughs> going to go
3: down in the Netherlands. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, should we maybe take this moment uh, to take a quick break and then uh, ask Peter all about his. PhD work so far, and his work with the uh, Sex Science Accelerator as well. We are back from a break, and so Peter has been telling us all about equivalence testing, but of course we have limited time left, and so, as you said, this was only your side quest, in a way. This is my side quest. I kind of
3: want my PhD to be a quest. Like I've never (laughs) really thought of it like a computer game. I'm definitely in the time now when they send like all the monsters at you at once, and you're just like, shit, shit. Ah. Okay, sorry, sorry. I will let Peter go. <laughs> I just like the time. Well, of do you positive. want to tell us
0: about your the the magical part of your quest then, the the main part or whatever?
1: You mean my PhD
0: project and or your work with the Psych Science Accelerator as well?
1: Um. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so, I'm in the first, I just completed my first year of my PhD, I should say. Um, so, <laughs> long story short, I haven't really mm, done that much yet.
3: <laughs> like like any single PhD student in this world, Sam, yeah. did you do stuff in your first year of your PhD? I did a study.
2: I did a study that I'm horrendously yeah. embarrassed by now. I <laughs> w- wish that I could scour it from the face of this earth and my own
0: Right. Well, but I guess, I mean, a PhD is meant to be an apprenticeship, right? So, yep. like, really, it probably is a good sign that you haven't done anything in your first year, then. Yeah. Well, I have done
1: something. Also, I like, I mean, I... <laughs> <laughs> That's, not... <I> <laughs> That's not what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, so, I, I have done um, a little bit. So, let me tell you about the little bit I have done, I guess. Um, I've, I think I've spent, so I'm not sure how people usually go through this process But I feel like I spent a lot of time um, figuring out what it is that I want to do uh, So I have a four year PhD, so it's quite a long time actually And uh, I'm sort of blessed when it comes to everything about it Like uh, I have a great supervisor, um, I get a salary uh, which lasts for the full four years. So I basically have uh, a lot of time to think about uh, what it is that I want to do. And unlike some PhD students, I'm coming into a project that is uh, brand new. And um, uh, Daniel got uh, the project that he got his grant money for, that he partially spent to hire me, uh, is called Increasing the uh, Efficiency and Reliability of Psychological Science. So it's sort of a broad, broad project. There's a lot of stuff that could fit within that, and Daniel has mm. given both me and Anna uh, a lot of leeway into like, um, into de- deciding uh, what we want to do uh, with our time. Mm. So, um, oh, so
3: did you did did you not have any brief whatsoever, kind of when you went into your PhD?
1: Yeah, I had a Brief, And we had some discussions of potential projects, um, uh, which I think led me to um, the first project that I'm currently working on, um, which is about determining replication value. Um, So I think in general, it took me about a year to figure this out, but I think I'm quite interested in study selection. So uh, one thing that I really like about Daniel's project is that it comes on the back of this methodological reproducibility, open science, whatever you want to call it, wave, where we have spent a lot of time figuring out problems with the field. So we have spent a lot of time identifying potential problems, and I think we've come quite far in uh, figuring out some of the mechanisms of those problems. So like low power... Um, and p hacking which is driven by publication bias and so on and so forth and uh it is nice to work on a project where the goal is to sort of do something about it uh i like the focus in this project of developing methods and tools and guidelines uh, to improve research practices um i guess in general i like helping people so it's nice to be on a project where i feel like that's the goal um and i think we've spent uh a lot of time figuring out like how to improve research projects once we have one uh so for example uh we have figured out a lot of um methodological approaches that could help us we've been figuring out how to do pre uh, pre-registration properly uh how to do transparent and open research practices properly um and i think uh an interesting question is that I think we've thought less about is um, how do we pick studies in the first place, and is there a way, and are there any way uh, that we could improve on the methods we use for picking studies to to conduct,
3: to to conduct or to replicate,
1: to conduct in general. Oh. But the oh, first for your project, uh, yeah, but the first project mm-hmm. is about replication, so. Um, what we're trying to do is determine the replication value of original findings. And this is based on the assumption that there are a lot of things we could potentially replicate. um, And we probably don't have the resources to conduct all the replications all at once. Which means uh, we have to start somewhere. And it's... um, A particularly interesting, given the sort of um, the tendency now to do large-scale replications of things. So we have these like registered replication reports. They are often multi-lab. They involve hundreds or thousands of subjects, and we obviously spend a lot of resources on them. And then we spend a lot of time arguing, um, some at least in some cases, whether they were worth uh, doing. So, uh, like for example, if you conduct another study of some, uh, bizarre social priming, um, social priming effect, like, is it really worth showing that, uh, associate professor priming (laughs) doesn't exist or does exist, uh, given the amount of replication efforts we've already invested into this, uh, particular field?
3: But then, how do you marry that with for example, on the podcast, we had an episode about the Smalbino and McElrath paper, where they simulated an evolutionary network where they looked at the evolution of bad science. That was the the the, the, the title of the paper. and they were saying about how the only a way to alleviate this evolution to really bad science is to replicate a lot of studies. And I think they had a pretty high, they set a pretty high base rate for replications and there was still an evolution towards bad science, but they kind of approached it as, we should be replicating more or less as much as possible to be able to weed out bad studies and then weed out the corresponding researchers. Um, How would you say this importance of actually selecting what we replicate because some priming studies aren't really w- worth even that amount of time. I don't know. How do you feel that could be, I don't know, integrated into one approach?
1: In general, I think that is just correct. I think we should replicate more things, and I think we should do direct replications of um, more studies. Um But given the fact that we have limited resources, I think the individual researcher that looks to replicate something will have to make a decision. Um, And even if they have a lot of resources, so say I have a ton of money and I can replicate a lot of stuff, um, I still have some notion, I think intuitively at least, that some things would be more important to replicate than others, and that some things would be sort of a waste of my money and time, even if I have a lot of it. So um, I could conduct a direct replication of the Stroop effect, for example, and spend like all my money on a really high-quality uh, replication of the Stroop effect. But that would probably be a poor investment, given how confident we are that the basic Schrupp effect is real, or would be rep- is replicable is probably the better word. Um, so the goal of the replication value project is to give people formal approaches to assess the replication value of original research, and really to try to make that a quantitative decision, uh, or um, now I sound like I think we can quantify everything, but to to quantify the parts of that process that can be quantified. So um, for this project, I went through a bunch of replication studies, and I just looked at how people are usually justifying their study choice. It's kind of interesting to see how people um, go about choosing a study. Um, and I think an unstated reason that is probably usually at play is the fact that people have personal interests, right? So I would like to replicate something because I'm theoretically invested in some field and I would like to build on some finding and I need to know whether that finding is replicable. Um, But people also use other reasons to replicate things. So um, I think one uh, quantifiable uh, Metric for picking replications is the impact it has on the field. Um, yeah, just like you could say citation impact is, is a measure of this, but people will also say something like it is important to replicate a certain finding, um, because it is a textbook case, for example, or it, because it is a classic finding, or there's some other way to denominate the fact that a lot of people are betting on that this is real and hedging their research on the fact that it is real. So we better go make sure it's real, uh, or better go make sure it replicates. Um, another quantifiable metric metric that people seem to use a lot is how precise the original measurements are. Um, again, I think this sort of goes back to why I would say the Stroop effect is probably not the most... Um, uh, replication-worthy result because we can already make really precise estimates based on the literature we have on it. Um, But you see people saying um, about the original findings they've chosen to replicate that the confidence intervals were really wide, for example. Um, Or sometimes they also sort of... um, They doubt whether the data is truly representative. So, for example, if a finding exists in the literature where we know there is a lot of publication bias, then there might also be reason to assume that this particular measurement might not be very precise. Or at least we'll choose to doubt it until we've conducted a replication. Um, So the general framework that we're working with um, in this first approach to replication value is to help people make formulas based on the assumption that um, things that have high impact are more worth replicating, or to rephrase, the more impact something has, the more worthy of replication it is, and the more uh, confident we are in the measurement, the more precisely it is measured, the more evidence that's available, the less worthy of replication it is. And uh, you can sort of wait if you can find a way to operationalize these two um, factors, impact and uh, evidence or, or precision, then you can weight them against each other. Um, if you can quantify it, you can actually derive some sort of uh, heuristic formula for doing this, uh, which can be helpful if you have a lot of options that you need to choose between. So for example, if I'm interested if I have a general interest in the research literature and I know that there are many things in it that needs replication, which I think is the sort of the state of the world now that many research literatures are full of unreplicated original research. And it feels sort of the same where I start, theoretically speaking. I'm interested in all the studies. And maybe there are like a hundred of them, for example. Then it's the way you might intuitively go about things is to like read every single study carefully but that I'm not sure like <laughs> that gets really hard after a few studies because not only do you need to uh, read all the studies and remember information about them and assess like if you care about impact you need to also assess like how impactful they've been in the field but you need to assuming you have limited resources and you have to choose one among these hundred studies, you also need to uh, rank in your mind uh, all the different options that you have. And the replication value is an attempt at helping researchers do this rank process. So that if you have a hundred options for what you would like to replicate, but you only have the resources to perform one replication, uh, which basket should you put your eggs in, so to speak?
3: Did, did, did this help you um, I wanted to ask about whether this um, has been directly informed by maybe conversations you had in your other work at the psychological science accelerator but I know that Sophia was thinking of asking a question
1: well, it's, uh, no that's of, fine no but it's kind of a nice segue Maybe.
3: Mm. yeah go ahead please because it seems like some problem you might run into in, in that endeavour
1: yeah so so just to, I'll just say this project has existed since the 2012 and I to, sort of took it over from I made some quotation air quotation marks there audience mm. um I took it over from the open science collaboration so the same uh, general people that uh did the reproducibility project psychology <clears throat> uh, so this has been like this is not originally my ideas like uh, I owe it to a lot of other people um uh most of the work that's been done on this project and i my work is more or less to sort of uh bring this to a close basically or bring this to a state where we can actually write up a manuscript about it and sh- and showcase the t- the procedure um but it is definitely relevant for what i do vis-a-vis the psychological science accelerator but maybe uh we should say what the psychological science accelerator is um go ahead It's it's a bit surprising actually how often uh, I mention this to people and they haven't heard about it. So the Psychological Science Accelerator is um, a large-scale standing research network uh, in psychology and um, it is quite new, which I suppose is why a lot of people might not have heard about it. but it has grown really fast. So at this point, uh, the network consists of over 300 labs from over 50 countries at all six continents around the globe. And someone pointed out to me that Antarctica is also a continent. And I have to admit that we do not yet have an Antarctic lab, <laughs> but I'm sure that any day now, any day <laughs> someone will sign up. Um, Peter's
3: gonna, gonna set up. Next to <laughs> ne- after Norway, you're gonna fly down to Antarctica to set up your labs, just, just so that you can say you've got seven continents.
2: To catch <laughs> the just ball. like a flag and a Wi-Fi router. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's
3: all you
1: need. Yeah. Um. But the goal of the psychological sciences accelerator is to um. Th- the idea, is sort of, to make this bigger, better telescope. Given the fact that we often need more participants than we can individually collect. Um, given the fact that we often need more diverse participants' pools uh, or we would want more diverse participants' pool than we actually have access to, the accelerator attempts to be uh, a way to address these problems. So the way it works is um, people uh, or labs voluntarily sign up to the network and uh, then people also s- make project submissions to the network. Uh, and we have, uh, as part of the network, we have a collection of committees and committee members um, that help organize the project submissions uh, that make sure it has reviewers and that make sure that labs are um, get the information they need and so on and so forth. And anyone can submit a proposal to the accelerator, you you don't even have to be a member of the network to do it, and um, once a project has been reviewed and accepted, then uh, it is proposed to all labs of the network who can voluntarily sign up for data collection. Um, So it's a voluntary process all the way, but the goal is to facilitate large-scale collaboration for projects that really need it. Or to facilitate um, uh, culturally diverse data collection for for projects that really need it. So um, for the first project, we're um, replicating this um, valence dominance model of face perception. Uh, that's proposed by Todorov and Osterhof. I'm probably mispronouncing those names. But the uh, idea of the original experiment was that um, y- people seem to assess uh, faces based on along two general dimensions. One of the, the dominance of the face and of the, and of the valence of the face. Um, but this was tested in a purely Western student sample. And um, and the, the authors of the, the replication proposal that was sent to the accelerator, um, they included an approach for testing this on a much more culturally diverse sample. And so part of the accelerator's job is to make sure that we facilitate uh, collaborations around these projects so that uh, the data collection will be from culturally diverse samples.
0: And what do you do on the methodology board, then, or committee
1: of um, the Um, Sex Science Accelerator? Yeah, so I'm part of the uh, Data and Methods Committee, I think we're called now. Um, So I'm a committee member, or I'm a a board member, I think we actually uh, (laughs) call Mm. ourselves now, uh, which means that I help develop policy at the accelerator and... um, the Data and Methods Committee are, uh, as you might guess, uh, responsible for policy related to data and methods. Um, My God, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. <I> mean, <laughs> so um, we're quite involved with the review process, for example, uh, and we um, we make sure that every project is reviewed based on its methodological merits. Uh, And we try to find reviewers with specific methodological expertise for the, for individual proposals. Um, we also try to develop guidelines for open and transparent practices, uh, which is going to be important because we're going to work with really large data sets that we want to have like, um, value beyond the specific project that we conduct. So for the first project for example there will be data collection from I think 117 individual labs and as a wow. meta scientist that is just a dream scenario like <laughs> uh, regardless of what they study like you will have individual uh, data about 117 different labs on a project and you can study like effect variation across cultures across laboratories um and you so need to collect so a fa- lot
3: of metadata, don't you? Like
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, hmm. Hence the Data and Methods Committee. Uh, and to <laughs> just to bring this back to what we were talking about before, um, I think with these large projects, it becomes increasingly necessary to determine what we should spend our resources on. And I think in principle. Um, there are hundreds if not even thousands of studies that could be proposed to the accelerator uh, but even a network as large as ours will have limited amount of resources and we will have to make some decision about which study it is that we're going to conduct and I mean in a way the psychological science accelerator is less theoretically invested than any individual researcher which means um there might even be more reason for us to care about like these more pragmatic metrics of replication value like um, the impact of some study on the field uh, or the precision of original estimates.
3: Well that sounds very exciting. Did, um yeah, in did in general. Miss, did I miss
1: <laughs> something Sophia? Like yeah. yeah,
3: how can how can people um, how if some of our listeners who are more on an ECR kind of uh, spectrum, how, how can they be involved um, if they think that that's something that they're also
1: interested in? Well, they can just uh, sign up. That's the great thing about the Accelerator. You can just join if you want. Um, so on our uh, website, www.sci.uk. Uh, Uh, Maybe you can add like the link in the show notes. Um, There is a sign-up form, and we recently uh, modified this. So now you can both sign up with your lab if you want to contribute to data collection. As I said, that is volunteer work, so um, you can just sign up and give some, if you can, give some estimate about how many participants you would be able to contribute in a given year. And then if a project that you like comes up, you can voluntarily sign up for it. And if it doesn't, that's okay. Then you just sit there and wait. <laughs> um, it is also possible to uh, contribute to the committees. Um, so, for example, the data and methods committees will need reviewers. And at any given time, we will need people that have uh, varying amounts of methodological expertise. Uh, One of the other main things we do is assign methodologists to proposals. So the goal for the accelerator is to have a dedicated methodologist working on every single research project. And these projects we will get from the general pool of volunteers, uh, who would like to be that. So in our sign up form, it is also possible to, um, to indicate, uh, if you would like to be part of a committee, which committees you would find interesting. Uh, we also have like, um, cultural diversity committee. We have a, um, uh, what is it called like a community organizing committee uh, and some others and you can also um, indicate a few facts about yourself and like your interests as a researcher that that the goal is that the accelerator can then contact relevant people for relevant projects basically and uh, our general uh, motto is the more the merrier so <laughs> don't let your imposter syndrome stop you, people. Like you are not too young, <laughs> you are not too inexperienced to join the Psychological Science Accelerator, and we would love cool, to. Cool, because have you. I've been I've been
0: looking at that sign-up form for a while now, but I always felt you like a master student. I'm a student. You famous <laughs> podcaster Sophia Kovalev. <Clement. laughs>
1: Come this episode on. is
0: sponsored by the Psych Science Accelerator <laughs> and Imposter Syndrome.
1: I will say the Psychological Science Accelerator is surprisingly, maybe, a, a run for free at the moment. So it has no money to pay for advertising <laughs> on popular podcasts. Sorry,
0: that was a joke, obviously. <laughs> well, but. Um, I know that you need to uh, run off quite soon to go to a screening of the new Doctor Who which I'm so jealous of. Yes, I am. Um so
3: sorry hey? I saw that yesterday.
0: <laughs> no <laughs> I just, spoilers. I felt
3: like I needed to No spoilers.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Great, so now I'm even more jealous of Amy. Um, but should we maybe end with the question that we got? Oh, I've been dreading oh, this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think you've
2: already actually seen this. Oh, it's such a good um,
3: question.
2: Ollie Clark, that's uh, at Sci-Tech Ollie. Yeah. Do, uh, I think, do, did you meet us Sips as well?
3: No, at Win at Reproducibility in Winthrop. Oh, did you meet him there as well?
2: I think I still owe him a pint.
3: Yeah, um, he actually came to our line. Sorry, lawn. Ollie. Sorry, Ollie. Sam, Sam. Isn't on good behaviour. I'm gonna beat myself
2: later. So, um, so, so Ollie asks, uh, what is a paper that you think exemplifies best practice in psychology and why?
1: Ooh. Oh, that's a very good question, and uh, I I don't have a good answer for it. One of the one of the problems of uh, what I currently do is that like I'm really into methodology and stuff which means I have a lot less time to read actual down-to-earth research that people do. Um, but I'll try to give an answer nonetheless. So it is a good question um, because it gets me to think about what is best practices in psychology at the moment. Uh, and there are many facets of what makes um, a psychological study exemplary in terms of its practices. So I think like if what you care about is transparency and open research practices, um, if you care about um, reproducibility, uh, if you care about pre-registration and how to, like, to do it and what it looks like when it's done well, then I can warmly recommend having a look at some of these like large-scale studies that have come out the last few years. So the reproducibility project psychology is one, but I think also many labs is a good example, and some of the other reproducibility projects are good examples of how uh, to really do data sharing, uh, and I think also, to a certain extent, pre-registration well, um, if you just want to see a good example of it. Um, When it comes to stuff like... So... uh, I will say to any listener out there, I'm currently looking for really good examples of how to do theory well and how to do theory mm. testing well in psychology. It is something we care a lot about in our lab in general, and I would love to see good examples of it. Uh, it's, maybe it sounds a bit pretentious that I say I don't have a specific study <laughs> that I can recommend that does it well. Um, I certainly think there are. Uh, research lines that does this well and so if you are a listener and you're listening to this and you have a paper in mind then please send it to me i would love to read it crowdsourcing this effort
2: i like that that's an awesome answer
0: yeah i think that was a great answer thank you um yeah and thank you for being on the podcast uh it was great to talk to you and um, um, we'll definitely hear from you more